Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a new PBS documentary explores the history of the black church. And at the intersection of black religious belief and politics. It's one of the tragic features of the American experiment. So let's, let's be very clear. To tell the story of, of American religion is to tell a political story. And this hour will discuss how it continues in the 21st century. And we'll learn about the mission of the C5 Georgia Youth Foundation. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, there's some news out of Fulton County. The Fulton County Elections Board votes to fire Director Richard Barron early today. Now it was a contentious hour-long virtual meeting, but by a vote of three to vo- by a vote of three to two, they voted for Barron's termination. This is not political. This is a bipartisan vote. The department needs new leadership that can take Fulton to the next level, modernizing our election process, making the county election system more accurate, cost-effective, and efficient. Now, that was Republican Dr. Kathleen Ruth. Uh, Democrat appointee Aaron Johnson spoke in favor of keeping Barron. It's not just Rick that we're getting rid of. As mentioned by one of the staff, we're sucking the air out of the department. Now, if everybody is fine with that, I just think it's going to cause chaos in our department. I think it's going to cause chaos for the November elections. And I just don't feel that this is the best option for this department. Now, this vote comes after dozens of Fulton election staff signed on to a letter in support of Barron. We obtained that here at WABE. Now, the board voted last week to fire Barron, but because they conducted it in private, which was violating Georgia's open records law, it was invalid. Now, Fulton County attorneys say the County Board of Commissioners must approve the board's decision. Now, when this will be added to the commission's agenda is not clear at this time. Stay tuned. There'll be more, I'm sure. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed the amended budget for the current fiscal year yesterday. We are supporting education, funding public safety, and public health. We're setting aside $20 million to expand access to rural broadband. Uh, That was the governor at a signing ceremony at the state capitol. Now, when the fiscal year 21 budget was originally signed last year, it did include a lot of cuts across state agencies, What a difference a year makes. This year, lawmakers were able to restore millions of dollars of cuts made from last year, including more than $600 million for K-12 education. Now, the amended budget still relies primarily on federal money to fund the state's pandemic pandemic response. And speaking of that, Fulton County schools have gone fully remote for today and tomorrow. Why? Due to a high volume of staff in quarantine. 
So officials with the fourth largest school system in Georgia confirmed a coronavirus outbreak at Medlock Bridge Elementary and Alpharetta was the reason to this decision. So face-to-face classes are expected to resume on Thursday. And those who are required to quarantine for longer will be notified directly by the school. All this comes as the Georgia Department of Public Health reported more than 1,700 new COVID cases just yesterday. So now the total, 792,409 Georgians have tested positive for the virus since last March. And while newly reported cases have trended downward since January, newly reported deaths have remained constant. Yesterday, there were 33 reported in the state, bringing the total now to 13,964 Georgians who've lost their life due to the virus. This is always information we get from the Department of Public Health. And as always, you can find the latest trends and data from our state online at WAB's own coronavirus dashboard. And folks, you can find this at WW, I don't need to say that, at WABE.org slash coronavirus. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In 2015, Chick-fil-A launched the True Inspiration Awards program in honor of its, the legacy of its founder, Truett Cathy. So every year, Chick-fil-A, which is headquartered right here in the Atlanta region, celebrates nonprofit organizations that are making what they see as a positive difference in the areas of education, hunger, and homelessness in their respective communities. Well, one of the organizations, C5 Georgia Youth Foundation, Yes, they're a 2021 True Inspiration winner. And join me now to talk more about the C5 Georgia Youth Foundation mission is Jackie Canizzo. She's the executive director of C5 Georgia Youth Foundation. And also we're joined by Brandon Wilson. He's a freshman at the Morehouse College, because that's how you're supposed to say it, and a 2020 graduate of C5 Georgia. Jackie, Brandon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. It's great to be here. We are... um bringing greetings from all of our staff at C5 because you are their, they say they're your number one fan. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate I'm just that. that to you. Hey, I, I'll <laughs> take it all. And Brenda, I got it right. Cause you have to say the Morehouse college, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the prestigious Morehouse college. Oh, now look at you adding stuff. Uh, <laughs> let, let's, let's, that's for our listeners. Let's, I guess, begin with the origin story, Jackie, cause there's always an origin story. What is the origin story of C5 Georgia youth foundation? Sure. So uh, C5 was started by the um, former CEO of Coca-Cola Enterprises, John Alm, about 16, 17 years ago, as he um, experienced seeing some youth that could benefit from outdoor activities. And so because his his children had gone to camp. So C5 actually started as a camp program, uh, residential camp. And then he used his own money as well as Coca-Cola Enterprises money to um, engaged some PhDs to create the top of the line, if you will, youth development program. Mm-hmm. And that is as it is today. So it is a uh, five-year program that starts with a residential camp and takes young people all the way to college. And that is um, why we have Brandon here to talk a little bit about that. But that is, you know, really the, the short version of the start. So along the way, um, there's a lot of components to it, and mm-hmm. we'll share a little bit more in a bit. Well, let me bring Brandon in, into the conversation. Brandon, when you first heard about this opportunity, and what was your reaction? And did you immediately think, okay, this is going to be cool? Or were you like, you know what, I need to 
feel these people out for a moment and see what they're trying to do up in here. Tell me about that. Right. It, it was, it was um, frankly, surprising uh, when I got selected. I had just uh, moved from a different county mm -hmm. and I moved to Douglas County. Um, and in a short time, they were um, recommending this program called C5 Georgia at our, in my middle school. And so when they, um, you know, nominate, nominated me for the program, um, I was fabricated and I was, was wondering like, you know, what is this? I want to know more about it. And so we, I went on the interview, um, got selected uh, and the rest is history. Yeah. Jackie, <laughs> you, when Brandon talks about, you know, um, being interviewed, uh, who are the candidates? And, and do you is a do you have a, a certain criteria and you all are working with some specific communities? So uh, who are the type of kids that you want to help here? Sure. So um, I wish I was there at the beginning to meet Brandon. I only met Brandon three years ago, but we work with several schools in Metro Atlanta, the middle schools. We start, um, you know, calling for um, nominees and the students in the seventh grade with our partner middle schools. Mm -hmm. And we are looking for young people that are what we call high potential, which means they have a B or better average in school. They are motivated to succeed. Uh, they have a little bit of a challenge-ready spirit to them, which means they are going to go on an adventure for five years. And we do work, we do, it's a very diverse group of students. Mm -hmm. We have um, no more than 40% of each segment of the population in because um, we want them to live in a world, we want them to be in a cohort that is reflective of the world we live in. So, um, we call these students the silent middle, if you will, because they're students that sometimes they're high potential but are overlooked because of you know some students that are much higher achievers, and then there's you know other students that our program just doesn't fit for them. So mm. that's kind of our uh, makeup of our student body. And so after the selection of the students, and then do you all have one-on-one -on -one counseling with them to get a greater in-depth feeling of what? they want to do are you do you in other words are you all sort of fitting the program to meet their biggest needs and strengths or what have you or challenges um honestly the there's a very um intentional curriculum that includes community action which is to introduce the the benefit of them doing community service there's mm -hmm. a social awareness component because we want them to be aware of of the society we live in the college as i mentioned the college and career readiness component and then the leadership component so uh, um i don't think we we definitely help along the way with the needs that the students have so for example in the last month we have been doing individual check-ins with all of our students we have about 225 students in the program right now mm -hmm. and we have done individual check-ins to see if they do need some extra help with school if there's some circumstances that we can help with. Um, we don't do direct services per se, but we do more of that, uh, you know, support, if you will. And how diverse is the staff or the, the folks that are involved with the students? Because I imagine that would have to be reflective of the students in the program. Uh, we have a very diverse staff. Um, we have a very diverse board. So we, in part of the, um, with the True Inspiration Award, that was one thing that was a requirement is that we have leadership that again, as you mentioned, is reflective of the world that we live in. So, um, yeah. Brenda, I want to come back with you. When you look back to when you were 
a, a youngster, now you're a ripe old man, but when you were <laughs> entering the program, when you look back at yourself then and then now, how would you say this program has helped you? Oh, it has um, impacted me immensely mm-hmm. um, from the experiences and the bridges I've built um, with other peers in my whole graduating class. Um, we have, you know, built long lasting bonds because I, I, I believe that a majority of us actually, you know, stayed within C5 mm-hmm. for our whole matriculation throughout the program. So we've been able to see each other grow and it's just been very, very impactful. You know, you think about um, school, when you go to school and you go to the same school for four years, this is a program that we've stayed with the same people Mm -hmm. um, for five years. We got to experience each other, um, you know, sometimes at our lowest and our highest moments. Um, You know, we're a bro, we're, you know, a family um, for lack of a better term. uh, And we have been able to really, really impact and pour into each other. Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, looking, looking back, um, I've, I've improved, you know, academically, I've improved uh, um, with, you know, leadership characteristics, mm-hmm. um, being able to go and hike in the wilderness for, um, <laughs> what was it, five days, yeah. was very, very life-changing. You know, we went out to Seattle, we were able to, you know, hike a mountain. And so th- this thing that they told us was that, you know, if you're able to hike this mountain, then any other mountain that, you know, you encounter throughout your life, is a piece of cake and that you can conquer anything. So that was very, very life-changing that, you know, I can do anything as a, as, as a C5 family. We all, we all can do anything. We can conquer anything. You know, nothing is too giant. You know, our goals, our aspirations are all attainable if we just keep the focus and stay committed to our journey. I definitely feel you on that. I've done many, many hiking in the mountains of Missouri <laughs> so I definitely understand that. Jackie, when you hear Brandon talk about what this program has, how has this helped him? And you heard him talk about just even, you know, with the bond that he shared with the other students. Um, is this, I guess, all part of what you all, this is part of the mission of the foundation? It really is, Rose. It is um, It is. It is a family, and it's really fascinating to be a part of it. Um, I've been here in this position now for uh a little over three years, and um, and so to what and have known Brandon for a little over three years, and he's also a he didn't tell you, but he's also a golfer, and you know I'm a golfer too, so we had that connection. But now, now uh, let me back up because everyone that says they're a golfer, now do you play golf or are you just both golfers? Because I'm not a golfer, but I play golf. There's a big difference. So let's be really, which means I'm terrible. So well, I, I'll tell you, Rose. <laughs> Miss um, Jackie, Miss Jackie, she's a PGA professional. Oh, okay, she's a golfer then. Okay, okay. okay. So yeah. I'm a golfer. Miss Jackie's the real deal. <laughs> so then I will not challenge either one of you. Then <laughs> we want you to, Rose. We'd love to have you come and play in our golf event in May. But but to your point, and and uh, we Brandon and I have that extra connection. But it's again, it's um, it's those connection points that the students as Brandon mentioned, have with each other. We have a very dedicated staff that is very dedicated to the success of the students, a very dedicated board of directors, and um, of course, volunteers. And so it, it has become this community and we have alum alumni like Brandon now, you know, the first class that graduated from Georgia was, you know, uh, C5 Georgia was 2010, mm-hmm. Brandon being 2020, but his class has a special bond because they, 
graduated in a pandemic, right? So, yeah. so we've we've continued to keep these young people connected through our you know volunteer. They come back and volunteer, but also through our little alumni association. And now we're starting to hear from companies that are actually reaching out and and asking us to recommend some of our alums for um, internships and potential jobs. So we are hoping to build on that. And that again was certainly the true inspiration award has helped us to continue that. Well, and um, let's talk about that award because um, along with the recognition, you also get a you know pretty nice funding um, opportunity here. So uh, how much did y'all receive? Don't tell anyone Rose, but we actually <laughs> uh, was a $225,000 investment in our program, which is um, mind blowing to, uh, to say the least, but uh we're very fortunate and Brandon will say we're blessed to have that uh, connection with the Chick-fil-A company as they, you know, Brandon, I don't know if you'll talk about this, but Brandon uh, works at Chick-fil-A for the owner operator that actually nominated us. So, um, you know, it's uh, it come, came full circle, I believe. Brandon, you are running for office over there at the Morehouse for the SGA Senator at Morehouse. Uh, how's it going? Well, um, the uh, election has passed. Okay. Um, I, <laughs> I realized that, you know, this, this year, I really wanted to focus on uh, myself, you know, as a freshman mm-hmm. going into college, it's a new experience for me. So I really let my brother, my Morris brothers take the helm on that, okay. on those leadership roles. But um, to say the least, you know, you're going to see more of me, um, you know, rise at Morehouse throughout the years. You know, this is my first year. I have three more years to go. So, um, you know, my aspirations are definitely SGA, SGA president, um, and, and serving those capacities to my my other brothers. I have no doubt in my mind, Brandon, that you will get there. And uh, we're very proud of you, and we appreciate you telling your story. I want to ask you, though, how has it been, you know, with the pandemic and, and learning? I know that for some students it's virtual, some it's in class, a little bit of both. Uh, how are you handling all this? This is different, I know, for that first year. Yeah, it, it's it's been very. You know, we think about the uh, the um, the class before me of you know their second semester was shot um, by this pandemic. But mm-hmm. you know, being you know the first class, I, I had to experience this my senior year, and then also I had to experience it my freshman year. So it's 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 been very very um, you know abnormal to say the least. Um, we've had to adapt and assimilate to this new normal. Um, you know, and just see see the the greater the greater good of it. You know, we always like to say in Morehouse, nothing stops the house. So you know, <laughs> we really press forward with you know our. We just had our candlelight gala. It was mm-hmm. virtual. Uh, we press forward with homecoming, virtual homecoming. We press forward with you know different events on campus and clubs and organizations are still recruiting. So you know, nothing ever stops the house. So we're we're still trying to. Um, make it as normal as possible um, in a pandemic and, um, and really, really cater to the students. Um, the Department of um, Department of Business Economics were also, we're planning to host a golf tournament um, in May. And so we're searching for um, courses um, that will host us and, you know, donors and things like that. So we're, we're, we're still trying to, we're still trying to impact and we're still trying to engage with our local community and also the students who are all across um, the United States and also, you know, give a great, great opportunity 
um, for all of us, you know, coming in as freshmen um, to really engage with the, with with campus, you know, be it virtually mm-hmm. or you know, some of my brothers were actually on campus living, and so you know, it it I I chose myself to stay at home this semester, even yeah. though they open campus, you know, to save money, and also you know I my conditions at home are a little, little more appealing, but, um, you know, it's <laughs> meaning you got your own room. You can get to the refrigerator 24 yeah, seven. <laughs> right. I right, got you. Right. On that so, you know, <laughs> I'm looking forward to next year, my sophomore year going on senior year. Hopefully, you know, we don't experience something like this in my lifetime again, mm-hmm. but, you know, also, you know, just adapting and, you know, being understanding, um, and keeping our heads up. Um, keeping the focus to our goals and, you know, our aspirations that we want to um, conquer. Absolutely. Jackie, how are you all doing in the pandemic? Have you you all had to shift some of your programming or your initiatives with the students because of the pandemic? And I imagine traveling has probably been put on hold for a little bit. It has, Rose. We, uh, we, we, as everyone else, shifted virtual to um, facilitate our programming. And our program is a lot of Uh, experiential learning. So uh, that has been a challenge, but we are cautiously optimistic that we will be able to facilitate the leadership camp this summer, as well as the uh, program that Brandon mentioned, which is the hike in the backcountry. And we are planning that. And we have, um, you know, a lot of, of course, COVID protocols, but, Mm -hmm. but we did do the best we could. And the staff did a great job to to do virtual programming. And we did a lot of programming. We actually did probably more programming because it was virtual and it, you know, eliminated some of the logistics for us, but we were able to even, um, you know, do some mental health support for our students, Mm -hmm. academic support and other things, as well as our core programming. So um, we made some lemonade out of the lemons, I think. (laughs) I think we've all been trying to do that since last year. And finally, Jackie, is an area, are there areas that you all would like to be able to either implement in the program or, or have additional resources for the students that uh, hopefully maybe the next uh, year or so or down the road that you all, that you envision that this organization will be able to accommodate? Uh, we're, we're always looking to grow, Rose. We are um, working a little bit more with more APS schools, and we it was a little more challenging this past fall to get out there and to talk to families and parents and teachers but um, we're hoping to do that as well as part of our programming is the career uh, readiness part. So we love to uh, bring students to visit companies and so we, you know, to introduce them to different career paths. So those are a couple of things, um, just, you know, a little more growth in, in APS, Atlanta Public Schools, mm-hmm. as well as the uh, career component. So. Well, best of luck to you all. Jackie Canizo, the executive director of the C5 Georgia Youth Foundation. I was also joined by Brandon Wilson, a freshman at the Morehouse College and a 2020 graduate of C5 Georgia. Brandon, best of luck to you. We'll play golf. I need you to, you know, spot me, okay? I need you to. I don't want Jackie in there because I'm going <laughs> to. I got you, Miss Scott. I got you. The ringer wrote. Uh, Brandon's got me. Listen, thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. You're the best. All right. Take care, Brandon.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Social continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Take a listen. I don't know why. I have to cry sometimes. The song is I Don't Know Why, sung and composed by the remarkable Thomas Dorsey, considered the father of gospel music, born here in Villarica, Georgia. What Dorsey did, he took a little bit of the blues, a little bit of the religious music, and called it gospel music. And some folks lost their mind, but other folks embraced it. And early in his musical path, check this out, Dorsey traveled and played with the great Ma Rainey. Now, gospel music actually came was birthed in Chicago, and after some resistance from then traditional black churches, gospel music quickly became immersed in black churches. And this is just one of the aspects that will be covered in a new PBS documentary from Dr. Lewis Henry Gates. Y'all know him. It debuts tonight on PBS stations, and that includes right here on ATL PBA. The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. It's a two-night event that traces and explores the history of the black church in this nation, from traditions and rituals rooted in Africa to the modern-day religious practices that envelop every aspect of black life. And throughout the documentary, there have been analysis of the intersection of black religious belief and politics. It's one of the tragic features of the American experiment. So let's, let's be very clear. To tell the story of, of American religion is to tell a political story. So all of the splits, all of the divisions, all of the contradictions that define this grand experiment in democracy are evidenced in America's religious life. All of a sudden, the dangers of independent black religious thought was really brought home to whites. For many, it pointed to what they feared all along, that Christianity would damage a delicate social balance in which whites were on top, blacks on the bottom. And that documentary will air tonight at 9 o'clock, but also show up a little early at 8.30 because our own producers, Jamie Green and Brianna Carr, have something extra for you. So make sure you all check that out. This hour, we're going to discuss how that intersection of religious beliefs and politics, how it continues in the 21st century. And also you probably get a little bit of a history lesson because joining me now is Dr. Robert Franklin from Emory University. He's the James T. and Berta R. Laney Chair in Moral Leadership at the Candler School of Theology, and also Georgia State Senator, the Reverend Kim Jackson, who was ordained an Episcopal priest. And later in the program, you're going to hear a connection between these two. So stay tuned for that. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me, Rose. It's good to be here. Honored to be with you again. Thank you. 
Boy, I could have let that Thomas Dorsey tune. I could have let that play. <laughs> I could have let good it play. for the soul. Yeah, let's begin here. I want to get your thoughts. As, as children, how important was church in your family or, or the community where you grew up? Senator Jackson, I'll start with you. Sure. So I grew up in a kind of Black Baptist traditional church while I was there every time the doors of the church were open. And so <laughs> deeply rooted in that um, gospel music continues to inspire me. Uh, to continues to soothe me when my soul needs soothing. But I was one of those kids that I practiced uh, playing church when I was a kid. I preached in front of my baby dolls. I baptized people in the fireplace. So the black church has been um, so important to my development over the years. Dr. Franklin, what about you? How important was it in your house? I grew up on the south side of Chicago amidst an extended family and community that had migrated largely from Mississippi and Arkansas. We were part of the Great Migration. So Southern religion, Southern Black folk Christianity found its way to the big city. And all of the practices, not just the worship, the preaching, the prayer, the song traditions I know we'll talk about, and Dr. Gates explores so brilliantly, but also the practices of hospitality, mm -hmm. uh, of having a meal after service. And you could spend, as, as uh, Senator Jackson has already alluded to, you could spend all day at church on Sunday. I mean, this mm -hmm. was an outing. It was a getaway. I have to say that uh, having grown up in a uh, church that had a kind of high voltage uh, religious experiences as a part of it, uh, the Church of God in Christ, I grew up just a few blocks away from the church that Emmett Till and uh, his family were members of. Mm -hmm. we, we, in fact, we were kind of uh, brother-sister congregations. So we knew the Till family, Mother Till. I was too young, you know, to have known uh, Emmett Till. But mm. uh, all of that for us imprinted the importance of a strong faith and strong spirituality that could make people courageous enough to push back, to fight back and resist violence and injustice. Dr. Franklin, let me stay with you because I know often there is a specific moment or even a journey when it's when we talk about the call to ministry. What was that hmm. for you? Hmm. Yeah, you know, after many years of feeling a tug, and I like to use that uh, metaphor, I think, Howard Thurman and, and even the theologian Paul Tillich often talked about an inner tug toward ministry. So I've been tugged a long time before I acknowledge, okay, I do hear something as well. And um, found myself in England of all places as a student at junior year abroad, my third year of Morehouse College was spent at a British university, Durham University, I was part of a Bible study and beginning to take uh, the study of uh, God's Word more seriously. And ultimately, during that year, I, I experienced just a kind of experience in prayer where it was a kind of enlightenment and mm -hmm. a, 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 something that made it clear to me I could not go back to my former emphasis or focus on, uh, you know, pre-law and, 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 and the like. Wow. Um, Senator Jackson, did you have a tug that Dr. Franklin just described as well? You know, I did. I, um, but it came at a really young age. I was just eight years old when I felt that tug, that pull. 
a calling to go into ministry. But because of the context in which I grew up, I grew up in you know, Calpin, South Carolina, and this kind of traditional Baptist church, I, I was told that girls or, or women couldn't become pastors. And so I actually put away that um, calling for, for quite some time because, uh, you know, my pastor told me I couldn't do it and, and I believed him. So it wasn't until um, later when I was in college, my college chaplain introduced me to women, to women who were serving as pastors and said, this is something you can do, Kim, and I think you should explore it further. I'm curious, um, did you ever get a chance to go back to that pastor and say, um, <laughs> can we talk? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's um, he has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And so I continues to be a, a dear family friend. And, um, you know, time is, is an amazing thing. And seeing other women along the way come into ministry, um, it, he no longer holds that belief. But that's that's where he was back in the in the early 80s. And Dr. Franklin, we should note that the black and I know folks for some of you have already emailed me. Why is the term the black church? It's, it's very broad. I understand. I understand that. So bear with us. But Dr. Franklin, that is something that the black church had to reckon with years ago. I'm talking years ago in terms of the role of women in the church. Uh, that's exactly right. It's interesting. We talk about the black church. It was really a response to racism in the white church in the uh, 18th century, as we began to see blacks and whites who worship together on a separate but equal, on a Jim Crow basis, Mm -hmm. often uh, blacks seated in the back of the church or in a balcony or in some uh, less equitable place. And uh, then there are the dramatic stories that we'll learn more about in this series of uh, Richard Allen Mm -hmm. and Absalom Jones walking out of St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia in the 1780s, in part because they were being insulted and disrespected, even Mm -hmm. during worship and prayer. And so they create these early congregations. In one case, the African Methodist Episcopal Mm -hmm. Church would emerge from, and in the other, an African Episcopal um, manifestation led by Absalom Jones. This is remarkable to see uh, at the very beginnings of the black church in Philadelphia in the north among uh, free blacks. We see this, uh, uh, this, this articulation of different denominational pres- uh, preferences, but for the most part they shared a kind of uh, patriarchal orientation that excluded women and later, there are wonderful stories of how in the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church, Reverend Jarena Lee, who also felt a tug, mm-hmm. she confronted Richard Allen and confronted the church about the gospel of Jesus being equal. Jesus spoke to women. He revealed himself more to women after his resurrection. And a lot of men had to say, mm, we have to rethink this. Yeah, I think and she interrupted time, a sermon, didn't she? Did, that's, that's right. Wait a minute. So, yeah. hey, you know, praise God for the spirit of resistance. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, that, that won. You know, um, last month in a conversation with now Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, we talked about the values of a clerk and those of a politician. And when those two intersect, take a listen. Here is how my faith will guide my work as a senator. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in any sectarian way at all. And so I believe firmly in the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. I do. 
Um, and I believe it, it, it protects not only the state from the encroachment of some kind of sectarianism, religious sectarianism, it also protects institutions of faith, whether it be the church or the mosque or sure, the temple, sure. from the excesses of the state. So I, I think people probably don't recognize the ways in which, because I'm a cleric, I've probably thought more about the separation of church and state than most people mm -hmm. and how seriously I take it. What I hope is that my values and these values that I think emerge from all of the great faith traditions, empathy, compassion, love, justice, truth, mercy. That's what will guide my work as a legislator. Well, I want to turn now to Senator and the Reverend Kim Jackson. What do you make of what uh, Senator Warnock said there? I think that Senator, Reverend Senator Warnock is exactly right, that we as clergy who have offered ourselves up for public service have had to really wrestle with these questions of church and state in very intentional ways. And uh, I, like him, come down on the side of, uh, of being non-sectarian, but being very clear that I do um, seek to govern from certain principles and values values and principles that are certainly rooted in a number of faith traditions, including my own as a Christian. And so those are the principles that guide me. And, and I, honestly, I think those are the principles, hopefully, that guide us all, of, of having love for one's neighbor, of being compassionate, of um, seeking to care for those who are, who are often marginalized. Those are the guiding principles that um, ground me and, and I hope will ground other, other legislators, whether they're clergy or not. Dr. Franklin, Franklin what do you think? Yeah, I think it's important to draw the distinction in language between being political and being partisan. Hmm. And you've heard uh, Senator Jackson do that. You've heard Senator, U.S. Senator Warnock doing that. Uh, the partisan is the, the, the sort of human loyalty and commitment to a particular party, a particular way of articulating a vision and platform. But to be political is to be concerned with the proper distribution of goods. Uh, recall the 1936 famous definition of politics used by the brilliant political scientist Harold Laswell. He said, politics is who gets what, when, and how. <laughs> and then later, years later, I worked as a student intern at the Georgia Assembly with uh, Julian Bond when he was a state senator. And uh, he added to that definition that politics is the about who gets how much of what, from whom, when, where, and how. And you think about that, it's kind of a, a, a distributional process of deciding of all the goods that are part of this great nation, as we think about the common good, how do we distribute in a fair and equitable way uh, those, those uh, secure those blessings of liberty, as the preamble mm -hmm. says. That's what good public servants servants do what politicians are called to do, to think about the common good. And ultimately, that's kind of a, a, a you know, matter of faith and, 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 and ethical commitment and values. Let me ask you this, Dr. Franklin, and then uh, Reverend Jackson, I want you to chime in as well. It sounds like a tongue tw twister, so forgive me. Should clerics preach about politics from the pulpit? <laughs> Say that three times quickly. I know. Uh, I, I think so. I think the opening, you speak of preaching, by the way, because this is one of the remarkable uh, 
elements, assets of black church culture is the preaching tradition. That's why we remember Martin Luther King. That's mm -hmm. why we all know that I have a dream or I've been to the mountain. It was the preaching, the proclamation of memorable, poetic, stirring words. And the very, but think about what was the first sermon Jesus preached? That's interesting. If you go back and look in the Gospel of uh, Luke on chapter in chapter 4 and verse 18, you find him in his first sermon saying things like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me, commissioned me, called me to preach good news to the poor, uh, recovering of sight to the blind, uh, uplift those who are oppressed, and it's an extraordinary agenda. So that's not politic that's not partisan mm -hmm. as some church leaders argue that churches should stay out of politics jesus went there first and he set the foundation for how christians should be involved in the world senator reverend jackson yeah i i absolutely agree with dr franklin i i don't know as a pastor how i can stand up and preach the gospel that's not political Again, it's not partisan, um, but it is, it's political in that it determines how we care for one another. So when I read the good book, it says that we are to make sure that we provide for those who are sick. Um, so the natural extension, you know, extension of that is to talk about our healthcare system. How are we caring for those who are sick? Uh, Dr. Franklin quoted some scripture that it ends with called to set the captive free. So when we talk about setting the captive free, I don't know how to talk about that without, without thinking about mass incarceration and the over-criminalization of black people. Um, the gospel is inherently political. And the reality is that's true for, for many of our major religions, that they have something to say about how we live our lives together in community. And that's the work that we do as politicians. We make decisions, we make laws about how we live our lives together in community. So absolutely, I don't know that you can preach the gospel uh, accurately and well without being political in some way. Not partisan, but definitely political. Well, and as this documentary will point out, I mean, tracing the importance of the black church and politics, obviously the civil rights movement. But I want to get your, your thoughts on this, because I'm wondering, is there still the same energy now in this space that we're in? with the political power, however you define that, of the black church. Is, is there, does that still exist? Has it diminished at all, Senator? Yeah, that energy is, is still present. I think that it's morphing and changing over time. If you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the church hasn't been at the forefront. But if you look at our current situation with COVID-19, it's black churches that have stepped up and said, we will make space for people to be vaccined in our, vaccinated in our neighborhoods uh, since the state has failed to do that. Um, it's black churches that have stepped up and, say, and said, we will feed people. We will um, open up our doors and provide more food than we ever have before um, because we see that as a need. And so, yes, the church is still very much alive. The black church is still very much forming and shaping future pastors, future politicians, and, and all of us. Uh, but it, it it is morphing. It's looking differently. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's, I think that's a good thing as we continue to move forward. Dr. Franklin, the political power of the black church, you know, is it, is it stay consistent as Reverend Jackson just pointed out? 
Yeah, I, I really like the way Senator Jackson articulated that. Years ago, when I was president at ITC, I published a little book, Another Day's Journey, Black Churches Confronting the American Crisis, and articulated this sort of almost stair step of levels of political uh, uh, social ministry, as I call them, how we ministered to those outside the congregation. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because it begins at the bottom level, in some ways the easiest and one that's most commonly practiced are ministries of charity, where congregations sort of provide immediate uh, uh, relief from misery in people's lives. Then the next step up is, is kind of counseling and support, helping people move from addiction to freedom, um, from whatever challenges they face. But a third step up I talk about is the power of social service delivery. And that's mm -hmm. where you know a third of the congregations in America provide um, daycare uh, services and other kinds of social services. They're taking on more and more. But uh, the fourth level is even more demanding, and that's the level of justice. That's the thing I admire so much about Senator Jackson and the voices in the public square, not just in the Christian community, not just in the black church, but across the board, extraordinary uh, people who advocate for social justice, some who feel compelled to run for office, as Senator Warnock did, and that certainly will continue. But the highest level, I argue, is comprehensive community transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's where congregations get involved in uh, building housing, owning and operating healthcare centers, schools, etc. So that if the state doesn't do fulfill all of its responsibilities, uh, religious institutions in a respectful, appropriate way can do some of that. Dr. Frank Franklin, you ran to complete the remaining term of the late Congressman John Lewis. Uh, will you run for another elected position? Yeah, thank you for asking. I don't know. I have an open mind about that. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what encouraged me, and I yeah. see it happening as I observe Senator Warnock and Senator Jackson and others, is the hunger people had for moral leadership. And I define moral leadership as leadership for the common good. Leaders who help us, invite us to become better versions of ourselves and to have run as a newcomer and to, you know, made it to the uh, to the runoff. And then I think uh, ran well there uh, amidst a, a, a whole field of very impressive, mm -hmm. wonderful people uh, was quite encouraging to me. So we'll see. Well, and finally, there's a connection you two share. And I'm going to let Senator Reverend Jackson pick it up from here. Absolutely. I actually want to take this opportunity to publicly thank Dr. Franklin uh, for being a pastor and a teacher to me. I don't know if he remembers, but I took his class on the history of the Black church my first year at Candler School of Theology. Hmm. And my final paper for that class was about the history of homosexuality in the hmm. Black church. And as a consequence of writing and researching that paper, it gave me all that I needed in order to be able to come out and to live my full self because I discovered in writing that paper that there was a place in the Black church for someone who loves like I do. And so thank you, Dr. Franklin, for creating an atmosphere where I could explore that question all those years ago and for just being such an inspiration. Oh, thank you so much, Senator Jackson. Wow, that, that was a surprise. And I'm, I'm humbled and honored and touched by that. And the big takeaway there, as you pointed out twice now, 
both with respect to being a woman in ministry and now as you you know coming out and being a part of the lgbtq community and also in ministry and in politics is people can change the church can change may happen slowly but don't give up that was martin king and coretta king's message to us don't give up keep praying and working so thank you well kim what grade did you get or excuse me reverend jackson what grade did you get for before we continue Uh (laughs) well i'm sure it had to have been an a plus paper (laughs) absolutely how could it not have been oh rose scott staring up stuff from in the past That's what I do. <laughs> Dr. Robert Franklin from Emory University. He's a James T. and Berta R. Laney Chair in Moral Leadership at the Candler School of Theology. And also Georgia State Center, the Reverend Kim Jackson, who was ordained an Episcopal priest. Thank you both for taking the time to share this, your, your knowledge. And uh, if you, again, if folks, if you're going to check out that documentary, please do tonight. Tune in at 830 for a special uh, from ATL PBA. And then the documentary starts at 9 o'clock. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thanks so much, Rose. Thanks, Rose. Thanks, Cindy. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.